0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, the book of Jude is obviously where we're going to be. Just to give you somewhat of an introduction, because we really are making our way into what I would call a pivot in the text. Uh, Going back, uh, really all the way back to verses 3 and 4, I want to remind you of those verses before I kind of elaborate a bit on the pivot that we're looking at here. There is an overarching theme to the book of Jude, and that is obviously found in verses three and four. Just to read those to you, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As we make our way into verse 20, we are not permitted to leave verses three and four behind. And if I could maybe give you somewhat of the grid of the book of Jude, perhaps it will help us make the turn into verses 20 and 21, and also... So 22 and 23, which are dealing with something very similar to one another, and then finally getting to the doxology, my hope is that as we arrive at the doxology, we will not arrive there leaving behind verses 3 and 4. And so if you think about the book of Jude, you're looking at Jude 1 through 4 as the, the primary thesis, meaning the command that is overarching throughout the entire book of Jude is contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, Over the last few months, what we've been elaborating on is who we are to contend against. If you notice, really, verses 5 through 19 are dealing specifically with that. It's laying out to us who we are to be at war with for the protection of the body. And as you move past the against, we can't go from the against in verse 19 and then leave behind the overarching premise of contending for the faith. Instead, what we find in verses 20 through 23 are the primary reasons or the primary people who we are to be contending for. So if you think about it in this perspective, in verses 1 through 4, we're told to contend. In verses 5 through 19, we're told who we are to be contending against. And in verse 20 through 23, we are told who we are to be contending for. And then really what we find in verses 24 through 25 is the promise or the hope in the midst of our contending. And so with all that said, as we turn here, my hope is that as we work through this passage, we will understand that we have commands in the midst of our contending. Contending is not an overarching command that says, do what you want in the way that you contend. Do what you want in the warfare. Have your own motivations and reasons for your warring against false teachers. Instead, what we find in verses 20 and 21 are the ways in which we are to live in the midst of our contending. Now hear me for a moment. If we were to make our way through the book of Jude and Jude ends, just stops in verse 19, we are left, frankly, I am convinced, in a very dangerous position where we have a singular command to contend and all the while we are contending for the faith, Jude has given us no admonition of how we are to live in the faith as we are contending. This is crucial, saints, lest we be lost altogether in our contending and fail to actually partake of the faith that we are defending. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jude, starting in verse 17 and making our way through verse 25. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would give us the heart that is necessary for a godly contending, Lord. May we not be men and women who flail around in our contending, but may we be men and women who are obedient in the way that we contend. Would you give us a heart for the glory of God? Would you cause us to to drink deeply of the grace of God in Christ? May we cherish the gospel we contend for, and Lord, would you give us a heart for those around us that we might, in our warring, that we might demonstrate great mercy. And Father, I pray that in the midst of this, that you would give us a soft heart. Lord, in the midst of so much, so many reasons that we should be immovable and steadfast, and oh Lord, we should, would you also give us a tenderness to care for those around us, to strengthen them, to bolster them, that they might be resolved in their faith. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So hopefully you've seen the way the text pivots from verse 20 to verse 19. You, you really do read it, or verse 19 to 20, and, and you, it's really obvious as you read through it, just to read through it again really quickly. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, and this really important word that you find in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And I really do want to major just for a minute on the word but, because you very clearly see a contrast between the individuals he's speaking about in verse 19 and the individuals that he's speaking about in verse 20. And so before we dive into the actual commandments, and there are very clear commandments in our text. I want us to understand who he is speaking to, to say really two things. I want us to identify who the Christian is not, and at the very same time, identify who the Christian actually is. I don't want to leave in the the verses one and two, the very clear truths that Jude brings to the table as we're living the Christian life. So the very first thing we must understand according to verse 20 is looking back at verse 19. The Christian is not saints. We are not of those who scoff. Blake very clearly laid out the premise that we are not those who play with the judgment of God as children play with toys. Instead, we are sobered by the reality of Christ's coming and His judgment and His kingship and we are made all the more aware of it and instead of scoffing, we sing praises to Him. We delight in His rule and His reign. We expect His coming and we When we meditate upon the expectation of his comings, we do not scoff. We celebrate. We look forward to the return of our king. We are not those who scoff. The Christian is not those who love divisions. If you pay close attention to the book of Jude, you will notice over and over and over again that one of the primary repercussions of the false teacher is discord and division, of which God says in Proverbs, he hates. Let's not lighten that word. The word is hates. He hates discord. He hates disunity. And the primary result of false teaching and wolves in the congregation is division and discord. These false teachers come in sowing discord. The Christian is not like them. The Christian is altogether different. The Christian loves unity and harmony within the bonds of faith. Further, the Christian is not only not those who scoff, not those who love division, but they are also those who do not embrace their ungodly desires. That is not to say that the Christian has does no longer have ungodly desires. We understand, saints, even as we are going to work through the premise of living the Christian life in the midst of our contending, we recognize the reality that the old man is still alive. The difference between the false teacher and the Christian is the false teacher makes excuse after excuse for his ungodly desires, all the while the Christian says, put it to death. These are vastly different approaches to ungodly desires. The Christian longs for the day when he will be free from them. The false teacher, the one who desires to live a licentious and sinful life, says, no, 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 we need to excuse them. And they may do that by saying, ah, let grace increase. Or they may go on saying, it is no sin at all. The reality is that the Christian does often have ungodly desires, but the way we handle them is with a sword, not with gloves. So we must say, based upon the simple phrasing of our text, that the Christian is not those who scoff, not those who love discord, not those who have ungodly desires or submit to their ungodly desires. And most importantly, the Christian is not one who is devoid of the spirit. This phrase, devoid of the spirit, if I could summarize hell itself, devoid of the spirit devoid of life, devoid of fellowship with God, devoid of the animation that comes from God's indwelling presence in the heart of his people and his church. These individuals, devoid of the Spirit altogether, have no life in them. Hear me, it's not as though they are somewhat alive. They are walking corpses. They do not have the life of God bearing out in their souls. These men are dead altogether. They are void of the Spirit and thus we should never expect spiritual fruit from their conduct much less from their affections. The way the Spirit gives life to the Christian is altering his affections and then giving him both the ability and the desire to work those things out in their lives. And so what we have is we are not those who scoff, we're not those who delight in discord, we're not those who submit to our ungodly desires, all because we are not those who are devoid of the Spirit of Christ. But the Christian is. And this is so crucial for our understanding of where we're going. Jude is not addressing the false teacher in verses 20 through 23. He's not looking at them. He's instead looking to the people he's writing toward. He's writing toward the church and he's telling them there's a manner of life that you must live as you are contending for the faith once and for all delivered. And it matters who we are because if we are not truly in Christ, then there's no way we can live out these commandments. Listen to what, just, just, just taking from the book of Jude, what she, what, she, what we should understand about the Christian. First, he hearkens back to the very first verse in the language of verse 20. But you, beloved, Hopefully this does call to mind the very first verse that Jude writes. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This phrase beloved really does denote two things. First, I am convinced it's a hearkening back to his introduction. He's reminding them that they are beloved, that not only are they beloved of God, they are also beloved of Jude himself. That is to say that the Christian is beloved in the saints, that there is a great fellowship and harmony and affection for one another that is born out in the life of the church. But it must first and foremost originate by being beloved in God the Father. Now imagine you're reading this letter and you're meditating upon all of the wicked people who are warring against the church. And perhaps it is at some point in here, you wonder, am I one who is causing division? What a unique comfort it would be for the apostle to look back and say, beloved in God the Father. That there really is an apprehension of the faith. We can make an assumption, and it can only be an assumption, that Jude actually knew the party that he was writing to. What a sweet reminder it would be to hear Jude say, Beloved in God the Father, and not only beloved in God the Father, meaning that his affection had rested on them from before the foundation of the world and continues on throughout eternity, but also inside the household of faith, Jude looks at these people and calls them beloved deeply loved. And this is a wonderful and clear mark of the church, is it not? If we pay close attention to the book of 1 Corinthians, you will notice that the central theme of the church is love. And he's looking at these people in the midst of his scathing letter, don't misunderstand, scathing letter and says, ah, but you, you are beloved. Beloved. What a wonderful comfort from Jude's pen to remind them that they're beloved of God the Father, but at the very same time, those who are beloved in God the Father are beloved within the household of faith. So the Christian is beloved in God the Father, the Christian is beloved in the household of faith, but the Christian is also kept by Jesus Christ. Again, referencing back to verse one. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for or by Jesus Christ. I like the by a bit better kept by Jesus Christ. In the midst of all of the study of these false teachers, one thing that gives the Christian great confidence is not that they can refute every false teacher. And brothers and sisters, it should be our aim to be able to refute them. But the great confidence of the Christian is not in their arguments and philosophies. It's in their Savior. The reality is the reason that the Christian can go boldly into really any territory, knowing that they will not be lost, is not because they are uniquely studied. It's because they have a uniquely perfect Christ who is able to keep them and keep them to the uttermost. The hope that we have, the confidence that we have as we contend against false teachers is not that I'm going to be a sufficient warrior, but that Christ has already conquered. And that on the last day, whoever we are contending with will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. This is the confidence of the Christian. It matters who we are in this letter. We must understand that we're beloved in God the Father, beloved in the saints. We must have the great confidence of knowing that we are kept by Jesus Christ. And we must know that we are not devoid of the Spirit, but that we are filled with the Spirit. It is painful to consider how lackluster our view of the Holy Spirit of God is. Most of us live, and we do, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has fully indwelled you since the moment of your conversion. How often do you meditate upon the reality that the whole of the Christian life flows from him in you? It's somewhat saddening, isn't it? That we spend an ample amount of time, as we should, rejoicing in Christ's finished work. We rejoice in the Father's love and election, but saints, you owe an infinite amount of affection to the Spirit of God. The reason that you do anything faithful in this life is because the Spirit of God is birthing it in your soul. The reason you war against sin is because the spirit is active. The reason that you pursue good and godly things is because the spirit of God is active in you. Should he be withdrawn from you today, you would be the worst of men and women. And I say that of my own self. Apart from the spirit of God, what really hope do I have? What good can I do? What affections to Christ will I actually possess? The reality is that Christ by His substitutionary atonement, cleansed us, and what Christ cleansed, the Spirit anoints and fills. That is the great hope of the Christian. The Spirit indwells and embodies and works itself out in our lives. Finally, we are among those who share a common salvation and contend for the faith. All of these things are true, and the reality is that the last one, the fact that we share in a common salvation and contend for the faith, is a ramification of the fact that we are beloved in God the Father, that we are kept by Jesus Christ, and that we are filled with the Spirit of God. If we do not have those three, we cannot truly, in a very real sense, say that we share in a common salvation, and our contending would ultimately be vanity or, at worst, a means of gaining a righteousness of our own. We are not those mentioned in verses 5 through 19. We are those who belong to Jesus Christ, filled with the love of God, filled with the Spirit, and we are to be actively contending, which leads us to the question, how are we to live in the midst of our contending and in the midst of our shared common salvation? He gives a number of commands. I'm going to read them to you quickly. And depending on how we work through this, we may be dealing with one of these a week for the next couple of months. So listen to what the text says. Verse 20, "'But you, beloved, building yourselves up "'in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So to give you the commandments that are mentioned here, not every single one of them are imperative, but they are meant to be obeyed. So to build this out first, build yourselves up in the most holy faith is the first commandment that we see here. Pray in the Holy Spirit, that is make it your aim to fellowship with the spirit of God in prayer. Keep yourselves in the love of God, which is a very lofty command, which great hope is found in verse 24. But it goes on, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and then eternal life will come with him. Have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And hear me, these are are the most compassionate commands that you could possibly find at the end of a letter that's telling you to cast out the false teacher. Because the premise here is that the way in which we war against the false teacher is not a violation of the way we live the Christian life. Instead, basically what's being said is as you're contending, do not forget to be a faithful follower of Jesus and do not forget to care for the flock of God around you, which really does lead us to the simple question, why was it necessary that Jude give us these commandments as he's concluding his argument to get rid of, to cast out the false teacher? And I wanna give you two major reasons, really broken up by the commands that we see because you'll notice that the first four commands deal normatively with basically partaking of the Christian life, enjoying the common salvation that we have. And the last three tend to deal with how we care for one another. And so let's just build them out in two separate categories. First, these commandments are given because contending for the faith is not necessarily living by faith. It is a tragedy. In our day and time, we have people who make their dollars warring against other people. The reality is, saints, that we are meant to live out the Christian faith. And as we live out the Christian faith, we do so warring against that which is contrary to it. But we must never lose ourselves in contending. We must always lose ourselves in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We must always be people who first cherish before we contend. It is a tragedy, but I am convinced that it is a tragedy that seems to work itself out often. I can think of a multiplicity of people who spew hatred and vitriol nonstop. And every time I wonder, do you actually have the faith that you are contending for? Saints, we must drink deeply of the beauties of Christ of the wonders of the gospel, of the common salvation that we share, then and only then will we be able to contend in a godly way. Schreiner says it this way, rather helpfully, Jude recognized that his readers would not continue to be devoted to the faith if they concentrated only on resisting the opponents, as important as that was. The readers must also grow in the Christian faith themselves and keep themselves in the sphere of God's love. Essentially what Schreiner is saying, and rather clearly, is saying, don't be so voracious for contending that you do not walk in the faith once and for all delivered. So the first category of the why is you need to walk and live in the blessed faith that has been given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to cherish it. You need to delight in it. You need to love the gospel. And as you love the gospel, then go on contending. And contending, go strong, bold, firm in your contending, but do so with the great love and affection of building your own soul up in the most holy faith. Secondly, we must remember that our contending is intended to be a mercy. If we miss this, then we are gonna miss the concept of contending all together. A basic illustration, as I was thinking about this last night, is if someone breaks in my house at 3 a.m., there are two responses that come from a father. Well, hopefully only one. The first is someone broke into my house, I get to go beat someone up. Not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is someone has broken into my house, I need to go get my children. This is the distinction between loving a fight and loving mercy. Loving a fight says, oh, give me an opportunity to shed blood and I'm there. The other one says, give me a opportunity to protect the flock and I'll gladly lay down my life for them. It's a vast distinction. And what's so clear in Jude's writing is he does not want us to have a violent and voracious heart. He wants us to have a heart that is fueled by our love of Christ and our love of our brothers, that we extend great mercy to them, often meaning that we place ourselves in difficult situations. It's the reason why the concepts of mercy laid out here are often noting that there is danger present. Go with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He warns them that as they exhibit mercy to the household of faith, that they must take care of themselves so that they not be lost. And so these two reasons are quite clear. We must go on living in the faith as we contend for it. And secondarily, we must not be swept up in violence as we aim to convey mercy. In short... The Christian life is one of contending for the faith once and for all delivered because it is one of cherishing the faith once and for all delivered. And it is one of fighting off wolves because it is one of protecting the flock. We protect the flock, therefore we fight wolves. We cherish the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, therefore we contend for it. This is the true heart behind Jude's letter itself. If you go back to verse Three, you'll notice that Jude's goal, what Jude wanted to do as he sat down and wrote this letter is although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude simply wanted to rejoice in the gospel of Christ with brothers, but he was mandated by the spirit, by love and by mercy to write contending. Now that leads us into the first commandment. The first commandment that we have here in verse 20, as we are contending, what must we be doing? We must be building, as the text says, you must build yourselves up in the most holy faith. So let's look at this. What is meant by building yourselves up? And I wanna give three examples of this. But first, building notes in active growing, maturing, and being strengthened. Simple phrases, and all of us can understand this, to be built up is essentially to mature, to grow, and to be made stronger. This is what we consider anytime we think of building something or maturing or being strengthened. The basic premise is that they are not as weak and frail as they once were, that they were built upon a foundation. And as they're built upon a foundation, they're growing up in maturity. A building is being made more strong. A child is growing to be an adult. Basically, that's what we're looking at here. And there's three Three illustrations that are normatively used in the pages of Scripture. Just to give you the three a tree, a building, and a baby. These are the three major illustrations that are given as we consider what it means to be built up in the most holy faith. So let's look first and foremost at Colossians 2, 6 through 7. We've already heard that read this morning in our call to worship. To be built up is essentially to grow into maturity and to reach an established position in the faith. Listen to Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him, rooted, built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. The basic premise, the word picture here, for lack of better terms, is that if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to continue in him, meaning that your roots go down deeply to Christ himself, that you abide in the vine. And as you abide in the vine, you will grow up, you will mature, you will be built up. And then finally, you will be established. That is made strong, made firm, not bending and breaking to the gust of the wind. Instead, standing resolved as they come the first is a tree the second is a building 1 corinthians 3:10 through 13 you'll hear me cite that a number of times this morning according to the grace of god given to me like a skilled master builder i laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is jesus christ Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So basically, just to clarify, foundation, the foundation Paul identifies as the Lord Jesus Christ himself and that there is a continual work that is done after that foundation is laid of growing up in the faith of maturing, of being strengthened, of being built up, and Lord willing, by His grace, built up not with wood, hay, and straw that, by the way, burn, but instead with precious stones, gold and silver, that which stands resolved. And so building, it's strengthening, maturing, and then finally, the baby, the one that perhaps we are most familiar with as we view them today. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3 says this, likewise, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Just for a point of clarification here, when Peter is writing this, he's not saying that you may grow up into justification. What he's saying is that you might grow up in the salvation that Christ has provided. He's not saying you must mature to be saved. He is saying that if you are saved, you will mature. So these are the three illustrations that we have. A tree, A building and a baby. And this is the basic premise of the Christian life. Hear me, saints. These are constantly used throughout the pages of Scripture. The assumption is that the Christian will mature. Now, for some reason, this has become a point of contention today to say that Christians will actually grow in grace. To say that babies grow up, that buildings get built, and that trees grow is apparently an abnormal statement in the household of faith. It's not an abnormal statement according to Scripture. The Christian will mature, the Christian will grow. Hear me, this is a promise from the Savior. It does not mean that you will be as mature as the individual next to you. It means that you yourself, as you have been justified through Christ alone, will mature because the Spirit of God indwells you. There is a certainty, there is a promise attached to this. You will mature. Further, who is being built up in this passage? I want you to notice the language in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up, I will confess to you that I have read this verse wrong for years. Because normally when I read this verse, I read it as build yourself up in the most holy faith. That is not what it says. It says building yourselves up. It's a plural. The assumption is not that you are so active in building yourself up that you neglect your brothers. The assumption is that you are actively building each other up in your most holy faith. And if I could summarize it in this way, this means that as I aim for Christian maturity, I'm aiming for Christian maturity for you. And as you aim for Christian maturity, you're aiming for Christian maturity for me. Basically, the premise is it's me for you, you for me, and all together. The assumption is here that as I mature in the Christian faith, that I am giving my gifts and abilities, I'm giving my very life to the building up of my brothers and sisters. And hear me, that's the expectation of every Christian. That's not a pastoral command. That's a Christian command. We are to be growing, to be maturing, so that we might be aids to our brothers and sisters as they do the same. The beauty of this is, adding its end the whole church is built up when there's an active giving of self one to another it is no surprise that the most healthy churches are not based first and foremost upon the elders but based first and foremost upon the congregation's health the reality is saints that as you mature grow you will also nurture and care and so as we grow, it's built up together, yourselves, not yourself, me for you, you for me, and then all together, we are being built up. The assumption here is the baby is gonna grow up, the building's gonna get built, and the tree is going to grow. Now, to give you a couple of other points here. First, who is active in this building? I wanna give you three, and there are three. First, God is active in this building. And the reason I'm giving you these is because I want there to be a confidence in the reality that we will mature. We live somewhat in this pessimistic concept that I might grow. Saints, what do you mean might? Do you say you might be justified? No, we don't say that. The assumption is the justification that comes through Christ is promised, delivered, given. Do you say you might be glorified? Do you look forward to the day of judgment and say, man, I I really hope that on the last day I I might be glorified? No. You take those promises as you should to the bank. The assumption is that you are justified and that you will be glorified. You say those with absolute confidence as you should. But for some reason, when we speak of our sanctification, we give it a little bit of a "Eh, maybe. No, brothers and sisters. The Spirit of God is not going to fail in the deliverance of the promises of God. He's going to sanctify. This does not mean that you will reach a point of perfection here below. It means that you will be made more and more and more aware of your sin and that by the Spirit of God, more and more and more sin will be put to death and the Spirit will vivify, give life to you more and more and more in the Christian life. These are not things that we get to question. These are things that we rest in. No, these things will come to fruition. And here are reasons why. First, God is active in this building. First, He grants the strength. Ephesians 3 14 through 19. Listen to this prayer. supposition here is that the apostle Paul is going in prayer saying that you might be strengthened, that you might come to a deeper understanding of the love of God. Unless we pull Ephesians 3 out of the entire book, Ephesians 4 tells us of how the church will reach maturity. The reality is that we need the strength of God. We need it to be birthed in us. And apart from that strength, there can be no real building, maturing, or a strong and steady tree. We must have His strength. And he is glad to give it, saints. If you do not believe that he is glad to give it, you must explain to me why he has indwelled you by the Spirit of Christ. No, he gives that strength and he does so joyfully to his children. Not only does He grant the strength, it is also very clear from Philippians 2 that it's God who works and wills within you. Philippians 2, 12-13, I would encourage every single saint to have this verse memorized. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works and wills within you for His good pleasure." You notice that simple phrase, there's a commandment attached to it, and we'll deal with that in a moment. But we must understand that it's God who is actively working and willing in you for His good pleasure. The reasons that you are animated, the reasons that you can obey the commands that we'll deal with in a moment is because Christ dwells in you, and as He does, He's willing and working so that you can be obedient to these promises. So, He grants the strength, God works and wills, and then finally, Romans 8, 10 through 11 which ultimately lays out the concept that the Spirit of God is actively giving life to your mortal bodies. And these are the things that I'm convinced we overlook. The reason we have life today is because the Spirit of God indwells. Romans 8, 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There are two ways that you can consider this. You can consider it first as a promise for the last day, or as I'm convinced that this is a promise for today and the last day. The spirit of God is actively giving life to you, strengthening you, and even then it gives us great hope for the day of glory. So God is active in the building and this should grant us great confidence because I know of nothing that God has failed to do once he has promised it. Secondly, the Christian is active in this building. I want you to take a clear note of a word that I used, active. The Christian is active in this and he's active most certainly by the power of God. But hear me, there's this, Misunderstanding, and 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 I'm trying to be peaceful. There's this misunderstanding, saints, that the Christian is still dead in their trespasses and sins. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me, you are not dead in your trespasses and sins. Your heart is not stone, you are not a corpse. The Spirit of Christ is has regenerated, that means given life to you. This means that your desires, I mean, we, if we believe Romans 6 and 7, that means we understand that my desires have fundamentally shifted from before I was converted. It means that I no longer only desire sinful and wicked things. It means that because the Spirit of Christ has given me new life, meaning that He's freed me from bondage to sin, that I am then able, based upon His life-giving work, to live unto Him. Saints, we must not misunderstand this. The Christian is to be active in the Christian life. It is not an assault upon God when you say that you actually do strive for sanctification. It's believing the doctrine of regeneration, It means that we believe the new birth is the new birth. It means that when we look at Ezekiel and we see the the valley of dry bones be clothed, we look and we say, those men aren't dead, they're alive. This is what we say of the Christian, that there is true life in us based upon the Spirit of Christ. Thus, it is important that we understand that we should be active in this building, not only for the building up of ourselves, but the building up of His church. So the Christian is called... Hear me, just listen to the language of Scripture. The Christian is called to work out your salvation. Philippians two twelve to 13 yet again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not a farce. This is a command. He's telling us that we should aim to build, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This does not mean add to. This does not mean build something else upon. It means continue and work through the salvation that Christ has provided. Grow in your depth of love and knowledge of it. So he commands us work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Further, the Christian is to make effort according to 2 Peter 1, through 5-7. Listen to what it says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort, saints. We are not fools. Your brothers and sisters that tell you to obey Jesus are not diminishing the spirit of Christ, they're believing you have it. When they tell you to obey Jesus, when your pastors plead with you to submit to the reign and rule of Christ, our expectation is that because you have the spirit, you will make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That we should be longing for Christian maturity. We should not desire to be babes, but instead to grow up by the pure spiritual milk of the word. Further, the Christian actively presents his whole self to God to be used as an instrument of righteousness. Philippi- uh, Romans 6:12 through13 says this: "Crucial verse: "Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey its passions." That is to say, go to war." Further, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Basically, the premise is, the saint should be actively offering himself up to God for the sake of obedience unto righteousness. Not righteousness in the sense that you need to be justified, but righteousness that flows from your justification because saints, we recognize that if we be in the Lord Jesus Christ, righteous works should flow from From us. That is not to say that they are the grounds of our justification. They will not be the grounds of your justification at your conversion. They will not be the grounds of your justification on the last day. However, to say the Spirit does not bring about good works is foreign to the Bible. Foreign. Finally, the church is active in this building. So we have God active in the building, we have the Christian who is active in the building up of the church, and then finally, we have the church itself being active. The church labors to equip the saints and build the body up in love. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, to read this to you, it says, and he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children There should be, as we'll see here in a moment, there should be a dependence upon one another in the Christian life. Finally, the church uses its gifts for the purpose Of building up the church. First Corinthians 14, 26, after a rather lengthy argument that I think begins in first Corinthians eight, where he says knowledge puffs up and love builds up. He begins to work through in first Corinthians, the ways in which love builds up the pursuit of that which builds up over and against the pursuit of that which puffs up. And the conclusion of his argument is this. First Corinthians 14, 26, what then brothers, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done. This is the primary motive of everything the church does. Let all things be done for building up. That there is an active care, an intentionally active care, that we are building one another up in the most holy faith. Now, I have one more point. Sorry. Not sorry. Three observations from your most holy faith. First, as we're building ourselves up, we must understand it's not an arbitrary building. We're not looking to just be a tall tree or a grown man. Instead, we're looking to be the tree that is built up, rooted and established in Christ. We understand that it is not arbitrary growth, but it is Christian growth. So he caveats it by saying, don't be building yourselves up on an arbitrary foundation or a needless end. He's saying, build yourself upon the most holy faith and then further build yourself up in the most holy faith. But there is a a, a slight change of language that he uses that is meant to convey confidence to his audience. Listen to what it says. Just compare the two statements, will you? So in verse three, he says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now I want to jump back down to verse 20 for a moment. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Jude is essentially saying that you are not just contending for the faith. That is to say, the historical realities that you hold to, what you are contending for, and what you should be aiming to build yourself up in is the very personal and apprehended faith that we live in. He is essentially giving them a statement of saying, the faith is ultimately your most holy faith. This is the profession of the church. This is the common salvation that's spoken of in that very same verse. This is meant to convey comfort, I am convinced, from Jude. He is writing and telling them to protect what you possess. Meaning, grow, mature, be strengthened in the faith that is ultimately yours. In a very similar sense, where we see the Apostle Paul say, my gospel. Saints, we do have a gospel. And we also have, in the very same way, an appropriate way to say my gospel. This is the faith once and for all delivered without question. But saints, it's our faith. It's our faith. This is the truths that we hold dear. This is the foundation upon which we rest. Our whole life is built upon not historical information, but the belief that it belongs to us, that truly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given it to us to build our lives upon. So he first says, not thee, but your most holy faith. And then secondly, he goes on and lays out the concept of building up. Building yourselves up assumes a foundation and hear me, saints, the foundation matters. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Hear me, if you are building upon something other than Jesus Christ, your foundation is going to shatter. If you want to have a self-righteousness, you are essentially saying that the foundation is your own name, that you're going to be built upon all the things that you can do and all the righteous deeds that you can muster in your life. Hear me, there will come a day of judgment where God will shatter that foundation underneath your feet. It is only built upon the Lord Jesus Christ that any true thing can be built. It is an endless and perfect foundation. Matthew seven twenty four through 25 says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Saints, when we build up, we build up upon a ground that cannot be shaken. It is a wonderful contrast to consider that Adam himself needed the foundation of Christ to stand. Adam, in his own working, in his own might, perfect though he was in creation, could not build his own foundation. And saints, neither can we. But there has been a wonderful and perfect foundation laid in the man Christ Jesus. And if we build our lives upon him, we can rest certain, knowing that everything built upon that wonderful foundation will not be given away to burning. Instead, it will be built with precious stones, with gold and silver. So we must understand that the foundation that is mentioned is Jesus Christ and His gospel. But further, we must understand that it must be built up on. The concept of building, as we mentioned at the beginning here, is strengthening, maturing. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 3, 12-13 through says. There's an assumption that Paul is making that you can put together the fact that straw and hay and wood burn. And that "'Silver and gold and precious stones endure.'" listen to what he says. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Meaning that we do not build upon the foundation of Christ Jesus and his gospel with anything other than Christ Jesus and his gospel. We do not go forward aiming to have a secondary form of maturity or if I can even and borrow from the book of Galatians, you will not, as you have started in the spirit, build up something in the flesh. No, the spirit of God must birth and must build. Finally, to build upon the foundation, hear me, we go back to Christ, his gospel, and his word. And to do this, I wanna give you a a section of scripture that's often misunderstood. Hebrews 6, one and two. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now I want to pause for a minute there. First, this text does not say leave the doctrine of Christ. That is not what it says. Instead, the concept is over immaturity to maturity. He is saying, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. That is to say that we mature, that we multiply, that we grow, that we gain knowledge, steadfast love, and faithfulness to the doctrine of Christ, that we mature. Notice what it says here, though. He lays out the foundation rather clearly. He says, again, Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. These are the actual foundation. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washing, baptism, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He's saying this is the foundation. He's saying this is the foundation. It's laid. It doesn't need to be messed with. This is the firm foundation of the Christian faith. Now build, mature, be strengthened in them. That is to say that we are not abandoning the doctrine of Christ. We want to look more deeply into it. So we don't abandon these things, we build upon them. We love the doctrine of Christ and saints, have you exhausted the doctrine of Christ as of yet? Because I will confess to you that Each and every day when I have the privilege of opening the scriptures for my own study, I am still enthralled by the simple doctrine of Christ, but there are things that I am building upon, truths that I have great confidence in. I'm not going to understand more deeply what it means to be imputed righteousness. I understand that by the grace of God, but I want to understand more of the person and work of Jesus. I want to delight in every aspect of his labors, his successes, and his victories. And saints, this is the call of the Christian. Builds Upon the firm foundation that has been given. Grow up in maturity. So we build upon Christ Himself. We build upon His gospel and we build upon His Word. I have a few more points. I am not sorry. Tools for building. Because here's the reality. I don't want to give you, here are the ways in which we build. Here's how we're to build. Here's who's active in building. Here's who's being built up. I just want to give you a few ways in which the Christians should aim to build up self in the faith and also the congregation as a whole. First, live your life in the body of Christ. I know I beat this drum. We all beat this drum, but I'm not going to stop. Because I'm convinced that your very life is dependent upon the church of God. That is not to say that the church justifies you, but God has given you a body in which you are called to live. Why do you assume there's a better method There is no better method. Christ has given His church for the building up of His people. To assume that you're going to go to some other agency, some other organization, and be strengthened is absolute folly. And further than that, it seems to reject the authority of Christ who tells you, go be a part of the local church. Build your life there. 1 Corinthians 8.1, again, the whole premise of 1 Corinthians, love builds up. The primary vehicle for the love of God expressed toward the saints on this earth is His body. Live your life in the body of Christ. Secondly, study the Scriptures. Study them. If I could make a brief application of this, everything you touch here is exhaustible. Everything you touch, every ounce of study that you have, you will eventually hit the bottom of it. That is the most futile thought in my mind, that I'm going to labor in something that I'm eventually going to be done with. Saints, you spend your life in this book, you will never hit the bottom. You will see glory after glory after glory after glory. And when you die, when you draw your last breath, you haven't exhausted it. But praise be to God, you get eternity to enjoy its author. The reality is, saints, that as we labor in the Scriptures, we are not laboring just so that we can gain a bit more knowledge or so that we can contend a bit more thoroughly. We're laboring in the Scriptures because we cherish the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We want to love and enjoy it. And hear me, if you want to be built up in the most holy faith, we must go to the Scriptures. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. 1 Timothy 3, 16-17, we believe this to be a promise of our God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen to verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You need no other armory. You can be complete as you study and labor in the Scriptures. Further, not only should we live our life in the body, study the scriptures, we should also not spurn the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, five through six. It is an excellent teacher. Hebrews twelve five through six. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. not be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That is to say that our father is active in our building, meaning that he does indeed discipline us. And any of you who are parents understand this, you do not discipline arbitrarily or at bare minimum, you should not. You discipline because you love your children and you want them to mature. Not only do you want them to mature, you want them to grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And by God's grace, perhaps it is when they see your discipline, they will be prepared for the discipline of God. We discipline to mature, to strengthen, to build up. It is no different with our heavenly father. When he disciplines us, we do not strike his hand and call him wicked. We thank him that he's demonstrated our own sonship. We do not spurn the discipline of the Lord. Last two. Draw near to God in prayer, which is the next verse that we'll be dealing with. Jude 21, rather simple. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying is the practice of drawing near to God. It is shame, and I, and I mean this with the utmost sincerity, and gentleness if possible. It is shameful how rarely we desire to draw near to our God. To simply delight in His presence and fellowship. This is what prayer ultimately is. And hear me, I understand that we pray without ceasing, this is the command. I understand that our prayers are meant to have directions. I understand that we pray with the intention of making our requests known to Him. But saints, one of the primary purposes of prayer is simple nearness to God. You wonder why you live in such anxiety and such fear? My simple question would be to you, when was the last time you drew near to the throne room of grace? Praying in the Holy Spirit, this is a means of building. It's delighting in His presence and fellowship more than whatever might vie for your attention in the moment. Finally, remember Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Saints, it is an unfortunate reality that Paul even needs to give this commandment. But it is it is a reality that we are often slow to remember Jesus Christ. That we can be so swept up with all the things that the world uses to vie for our attention and we do not pause and meditate upon the simple fact that Jesus is ours. And not only that Jesus is ours, but He delights to be ours. That He's our elder brother who loves and cares for us, that he's our prophet, that he's our priest, that he's our king, that even then he is defeated and triumphed over death, that he has conquered the principalities and powers, that he is the offspring of the shoot of Jesse, that he is the king of the universe, that he is the prophet who speaks a better word, that he is the priest who makes perfect sacrifice saints. How often do you pause to remember Jesus Christ? Because this is the ultimate foundation This is the ultimate way that the church is built up. This is how we are strengthened by an ever constant meditation upon the wonderful works of Christ, not just His works, but His person as well, to be reminded of His sweetness and the glories of His fellowship, to know that there will be a day when we will rest forever in His kingdom, to know that the better word that has come has been thorough, to know that His sacrifice is complete, to rest upon these things are ultimately the grounds of Christian maturity. You want to grow? You want to mature in the Christian faith? And hear me, you should desire maturity and growth in the Christian faith. The plea is simply this, remember Jesus Christ. He is both the foundation and the substance of the material used to build up, to grow into, to reach maturity. And the maturity that's mentioned according to Ephesians is that we grow up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. You cannot get there if you are not actively remembering Him.